Third Issue for All Women. Hello and welcome to episode 263 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and Mr T is in my house. Pity the fool. Pay the fool. Did he fly there? He he's not getting on no crazy plane, Hannah. Absolutely not. He got in a car from Stevenage. I say got in a car. He is a teeny tiny kitten. We put him in a car and brought him home from Stevenage. Aww. Why a 40-year-old reference, <laughs> Because I'm 46. It's actually short for Mr. Trousers. That's his full name. Does he have discernible trousers? He's a cat. All cats have fluffy trousers. Not all cats. Hashtag not all cats have fluffy trousers. <laughs> Hashtag Sphinx cats are real, uh, even though they don't look it. <laughs> he does have fluffy trousers. Ah, We've seen him. We have seen him. I was going to say, does he have a mohawk? But I know he doesn't, because I've seen him. No. He's got like a broken M on his head because he's a mackerel tabby. So he's got, All tabby like, cats little... have an M on their yeah. head. Isn't it just mackerel ones? That's no, why they're I called mackerel tabbies ones. have an M on their head. Don't know why. I only learnt this quite recently. Oh, good fact. Because I was Googling, why do my cats have big fat aprons? Because <laughs> they're lady cats. Yeah. And I answered that question and also learned that Peggy's got an M on her head, which I'd never noticed before. Anyway, I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I don't know, it's been going on for friggin' ages now, so I might as well say it. I don't understand the Barbie frenzy. But it looks like a really fun film. But it looks like a headache. The trailers are so funny. I'm actually very excited to see it. I'm ambivalent. I did not like Barbie. I did not have Barbie dolls as a kid. I didn't have dolls at all. I found them creepy. Still do. But this film looks fun. Ryan Gosling looks fun. Margot Robbie looks fun. It just looks fun. And it's Greta Gerwig as well, so it'll be quite feminist. And Issa Rae's in it. Will Ferrell's in it. I love Issa Rae. I've no problem with it existing and people going to see it, but (laughs) I literally, I can't escape it. It's absolutely everywhere. I will go and see it, but I probably won't wear pink. Oh, I'm not going to dress up. Exactly. I think it looks all right. Good soundtrack, apparently. That's what I got. And in a similarly ambivalent theme, I'm Jen Offord, and I don't care if Brad Pitt went to the tennis. I don't. But he ate crisps, Jen. I don't fucking care if any of them went to the tennis. It made me quite angry yesterday, because usually I'm like, oh, look, it's so-and-so there, it's so-and-so there. And this year, I was just a bit like, I just felt a bit pissed off about it. Like it was some kind of like, you know, you didn't enter the fucking ballot, did you, Brad? (laughs) A friend of mine, Paul, tweeted this morning that it looked like, you know, when they used to do those audiences with on ITV and he sort of zoomed in on on random selections like Dennis Norden or people like that. (laughs) King Felipe of Spain. Yeah, that it was like that. I'm glad that Carlos Alcaraz, not Alcaraz, as I have been saying, uh, I'm glad that he won. Well done, Carlos, if you're listening. What a talent. I'm sure he is. I'm sure he is And, too. you know, as is Brad Pitt, and he's probably very upset with you right now, Chip. Don't care. Enter the ballot next time, Brad. This is like the start of you getting cross that famous people get free shit, Jen. This is going to be a long-running <laughs> series. Mm. I entered the ballot once. Did you get tickets? Yeah, I did. I got women's semi-final tickets. Fair play, Hannah. That's an and equitable way of, of arranging. I ballot. I, I got tickets, yeah. And what's your other Wimbledon fact, Hannah? Because he was there, he was there for us yesterday. He's one of Novak Djokovic's coaches. I won a small fortune on the Wimbledon final. Goran is Ivanizovic. Yeah. Only yeah. wild card to win Wimbledon in the male singles final. His face on. I sometimes sleep in. But moving on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to move on. Can I you wear that tonight, toes. please? I would like to see it. Coming up, author Elizabeth Fremantle tells me about the incredible life of 17th century artist Artemisia Gentileschi, whose beautiful but brutal paintings reveal her own fierce and painful story. 
I chat to journalist and author Paula Kukoksa about her new book, Speak to Me, Relationships and a Lack of Connection in an Overly Connected World. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'll be looking ahead to the Women's World Cup, which kicks off on Thursday. Football! Football! (laughs) And, immorated or dated, girls just want to have an equal shot at the top job as we watch Whale Rider, released in the UK this month in 2003. But first... Sexism, sexism, and Jesus Christ, is that more sexism? (laughs) It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we know that one man's boundaries is another woman's cage. Talk to me about boundaries, Mick. Boundaries are something that you set for yourself, Jen, not something that you use to control other people. You know, if someone breaks your boundaries, you don't get them to change. You decide whether you need to leave because it's broken your boundaries. Allegedly, Jonah Hill, not okay with this, and did send his ex-girlfriend, or his girlfriend at the time, a lot of messages telling her what she could and couldn't do in order to respect his boundaries. That's just not how boundaries work. No. Isn't the point of a boundary that you sort of say, like, this this is what I want, and then you kind of, like, leave it up to the person to figure out how to meet that requirement, if you will. And then if you... Like you could say to someone, I would like you to have a little bit more respect for my time. Mm. And then it would be kind of up to them how they achieved that. And then if they didn't, you'd go, okay, I'm going to fuck off. Exactly. Also, if you decided that you are dating a woman who is a surfer, a professional surfer, and then one of your boundaries (laughs) is you can't surf with men, then I think you are very much the arsehole in that situation. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this before, but I think that boundaries are used to... uh, disguise or justify quite a lot of fuckery actually but um... so i will actually say it is where we know that one person's boundaries is another person's cage because i think women are as guilty of doing this as men may we (laughs) anyway let's get back to the sexism though jen i was particularly spoiled for choice for sexism of the week this week which isn't something I expect you to engage your surprise face for. But even by the usual standards, it was a lot. And so you're getting one here for free. You are welcome. Now, this happened in Italy, but I think what the judges said in this case, probably, sadly, enragingly, reflects how a lot of people feel about this shit. So, Jen, quick question for you. Does it count as sexual harassment if an assault lasts less than 10 seconds? Um, yes. Harassment is harassment. No? Okay. Okay, let's try again. Jen, how long is a man allowed to touch your body without your consent? He's not. Right, come on now, Jen. I thought you'd be doing better than this. Final try. Is it a crime for a 66-year-old man, a school caretaker, to pull down a 17-year-old female student's trousers, touch her buttocks and grab her underwear? I mean, yes. Uh, <laughs> fail all around there, Jen. According to judges in Rome, Antonio Avola, who admitted to groping the student without consent, but said it was a joke, did not yes. commit a crime because it lasted less than 10 seconds. I mean, he sounds funny, doesn't he? What a lol fest. <laughs> oh, wait, no. It very much seems the court ruling is the only fucking joke here. If you're quite rightly listening and screaming, what the actual fuck? Fair dues, get it out, yeah? Better out than in. And now allow me to make you do it again. This acquittal came because, according to the judges, the caretaker did not linger. 
he groped the teenager only briefly, performing an, and I quote, awkward manoeuvre without lust. Oh well, if he wasn't getting off on it and the judges could tell that. Wow. <laughs> hmm. Since the ruling, palpata breve, that's me trying an Italian pronunciation there, but it means a brief groping, has become a trend on Instagram and TikTok in Italy, along with the 10 secondi hashtag. And Italians have posted videos looking at the camera in silence and touching their intimate parts for 10 seconds straight. The aim of showing just how long 10 seconds can feel. It can feel a really long time. As well as showing just how normalised sexual harassment is in Italian society, it is a really early lesson in institutionalised sexism for this young woman, who said she feels doubly betrayed by her school and by the justice system, telling the Corriere della Sera, that's a newspaper, I'm starting to think I was wrong to trust the institutions. This is not justice. He groped my bottom. Then he pulled me up, hurting my private parts. For me, this is not a joke. This is not how an old man should joke with a teenager. That handful of seconds was more than enough for the caretaker to make me feel his hands on me. The judges ruled that he was joking. Well, it was no joke to me. Recent figures from the EU's Fundamental Rights Agency suggested that 70% of Italian women who had suffered harassment between 2016 and 2021 did not report the incident. I'm pretty sure this ruling isn't going to help change things for the better. Wow. In it. I mean, maybe though, Jen, maybe she was just being a bit dramatic. Any thoughts on that? Well, Mick, here's a story that is going to surprise no one, and I mean no one who listens to this podcast with any regularity. Having chatted pretty extensively on the subject over the years, it is certainly not surprising to me that a recent YouGov survey has found that a fifth of young women who've sought help for mental health concerns have said they were told they were being, and I quote, dramatic. Other variations of this theme included being told they were overthinking things or asked if they were on their period because... Hell. I know. Because as ever, bitches be crazy, right? Oh, obviously, yeah. Yeah. And those attitudes have real-life consequences. 31% of the 2,000 women surveyed on behalf of the Campaign Against Living Miserably, or CALM, as they're more commonly known, feared they would not be taken seriously, while 22% worried that they would be seen as, and I quote, attention-seeking. Beyond those concerns, highlighted by the survey's findings, ONS statistics from September last year found that while men aged between 45 and 64 continue to have the highest rate of suicide and that suicide is more prevalent in women aged between 45 and 49, women under the age of 24 had seen the largest increase in suicide rates since it started publishing data in 1981. Wow, that is worrying. That is worrying. CALM's chief executive Simon Gunning said that the statistics were shocking and said that damaging stereotypes of women as, and I quote, over-emotional, hormonal and attention-seeking were leaving young women unheard and unsupported and lives are at risk like never before. Paging Catelyn Moran, the girls, it seems, are not all right. Mm. I don't want to jump on the bandwagon, but she is talking shit, isn't she? Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) a reminder that if you are in distress and you need to talk to someone, Samaritans can be contacted in the UK and Ireland on free phone 116123 or via email on joe at samaritans.org or .ie in Ireland. It's all tied in, isn't it? It's all a horrible 
web of sexism. Yeah. So sticky. So sticky, Jen. Really, really unpleasantly sticky. Um, Mick, would you like some good news? Fucking hell, I would love some good news. Give me some fucking good... Give it me now! She said dramatically. What an attention seeker. (laughs) It really is great news if, like me and thee, you are partial to a beer, or indeed partial to not perishing in the infernal grip of climate change. Yeah, Yeah? totally. Uh Two big ticks right here. Congratulations to Gypsy Hill Brewery in South London. It was thought to be the first ever brewery to have produced a carbon neutral beer with its swell lager and trail pale beers. The brewery has achieved this by using barley grown through regenerative farming in the brews, as well as hops which have been recaptured and reused. I don't know what this... (laughs) Recaptured is amazing. Like, do they run away? I don't know. I don't know what it means. But they have like a lasso for hops? Reuse is better than recycle. I know that. I don't know how you recycle or reuse hops, but that's what they do. They recapture them. I'm excited. The net result is that the beer is carbon neutral without offsetting. Not against offsetting light, but it is better just to not do the damage in the first place. Wise words for most walks of life there, Jen. (laughs) For comparative purposes, beertoday.co.uk, which I think is a glorious name. Uh, I think that's your screensaver, isn't it? Like just <laughs> when you go into Safari or Firefox or whatever search engine you use, that's the page that comes up. <laughs> Beertoday.co.uk. Anyway, the website states that the latest beers have the equivalent of 40 and 30 grams of carbon dioxide, respectively, compared to 350 grams for the Ooh. typical lager and 500 or more for a craft IPA. Oh, I love a craft IPA. Yeah, me too. Now, to finish this as if this were an item on a local news, uh, (laughs) sounds like a good excuse for a pint, if you ask me. Cheers, Jen. (laughs) More news (laughs) next week. (laughs) Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where women are too old to be taken seriously, apart from the young women who are too young to be taken seriously. Oh, wow. Sometimes it's hard to be a woman. Correction, Tammy. It's all times. <laughs> Researchers Amy Deal, Leanne M. Zabinski and Amber L. Stevenson surveyed 913 women leaders across various sectors and found that age discrimination affects women of almost any age. Great news. The shit is consistent at the very least. I can't believe it, Mick. I, I know, I, I know, can't believe Jen. it. You have a sit down and recover from the shocking news. In a preliminary study featured in the Harvard Business Review and currently undergoing peer review, Deal, Zabinski and Stevenson claim that age discrimination is not just happening to older women, noting there is no prime working age or sweet spot for professional women. Women under 40 were seen as inexperienced and faced role incredulity, while older women were deemed unworthy of advancement and seen as difficult to manage with too much family responsibility. But, and brace yourselves for an absolute shocker, their male counterparts did not face that same bias. Who knew? In fact, for men, middle age can often be their professional peak and prime earning years. Their family transitions are more likely to be valued as well. When men have children, they can benefit from what researchers call the fatherhood bump Mm -hmm. in pay because they are now subconsciously seen as more mature and committed to work. 
Whereas, as Deal, Zabinski and Stevenson note, quote, there's always an age-based excuse to not take women seriously, to discount their opinions, or to not hire or promote them. And you might be listening thinking, Mick, come on now, we didn't need research to tell us this insidious ageist crap. But here's the kicker. Another of Deal, Zabinski's and Stevenson's studies examined gender bias in law, higher education, faith-based non-profits and healthcare. They are industries where women dominate and they found the same shit sticks. The underlying problem, it seems, remains being a woman. Paging Catelyn Moran. <laughs> Can we talk about difficult to manage? That's, that is interesting, isn't it? What does that mean? I don't know, maybe they need to employ the people who recapture hops to look after <laughs> middle-aged women. Yeah, I think it means, Jen, that as women get older, we get a bit more confident in our opinions mm. and expressing them. Yeah. And uh, a lot of men don't like that. No way. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by author Elizabeth Fremantle, whose latest historical fiction, Disobedient, is a feminist retelling of the life of an incredible, trailblazing 17th century artist. Elizabeth, hello. Hi. Hi, Mickey. It's great to be here. It's so good to have you. So tell us, who was Artemisia Gentileschi? So Artemisia was the foremost female painter of the Renaissance period, and really... I don't like to talk about her as just the foremost female painter. She was one of the great painters of that period. And yet she was a woman. So she had to negotiate enormous obstacles to achieve what she achieved. She painted some of the most brutally violent biblical scenes, such taboo subjects for a woman. And she really gained a huge amount of respect. You know, next to her peers, she achieved extraordinary commissions. She she painted at the court of Charles I here in England. She painted for the Medici family. I mean, she was really one of the greats. But of course, she kind of fell to obscurity because Baroque art went a bit out of fashion. And then I blame the Victorians. I mean, you know, for so much. that kind of <laughs> lack of interest in anything produced by women there's the odd novel, obviously, and we know them all very well. But painters, women who painted those kind of scenes, their work wasn't even looked at. It wasn't even considered because it wasn't thought to be of any interest before anyone had even seen it. So it's only in the last maybe 30 years that even the art history world have really started to kind of reclaim her and reinvigorate her, her reputation and her work. I feel like she's having a bit of a moment now. A lot of people are starting to discover her, not least because of a brilliant, brilliant book by someone called Katie Hessel, a young art historian who's done a book called The Story of Art Without Men. We've had Katie on the podcast. She's cracking, yeah. She very kindly gave me a quote, a cover quote for the book. And um, it's women like her who are really bringing characters like Artemisia back into the kind of public consciousness. She should be a household name, and she will be. I'm determined. (laughs) Well, your book certainly made me look her up, and oh my goodness, her painting is just incredible. It's so visceral. Yeah. I mean, that was how I first discovered her was through, I saw this painting, and it was, I mean, only Caravaggio had tackled that subject before, which is the subject of, it's a biblical scene, and it's a woman 
actually beheading, in the act of beheading a man, all you need to know is that it's an incredibly violent painting. And a lot of painters had tackled that subject, but not in that moment. They'd have, you know, the decapitated head in a basket, half covered, and the women going off with the head. So none of the violence, all the violence of it was all hidden. Whereas Caravaggio had painted a depiction of this probably about 15 years before Artemisia tackled it. So not only was she only the second person to tackle that subject, but she was the only female to even consider it. It was such a taboo for someone like her to paint something like that. And you look at it now, I mean, there was an exhibition of her work at the National Gallery, and I'm sure Katie Hessel will have told you this. It was in 2020. It was the first solo exhibition at the National Gallery of a a female painter. Go figure. It's 2020. Crackers, isn't it? And unfortunately, as we all know, that was the year of lockdown. So it was postponed. And then when it finally, you know, people could go and see it, sort of 12 people were allowed in at once and you had to queue around the block, which is a great shame because I think many, many people would have seen her work and understood what all the fuss is about because her work stands up on its own as kind of really, really great and powerful painting. She painted two versions of the Judith, which is the this painting I'm talking about. They were both hung side by side. And oh my goodness, I really had a moment to see these paintings because I had been writing that novel in lockdown. And then I sat for about an hour in front of them, just taking it in. They grab you and they make you think and they make, you know, they make you wonder about why this woman felt she needed to paint such a violent act. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. It really is. I've only seen it on uh, the old computer, but I looked at Caravaggio's Judith and then I looked at Artemisia's Judith's slaying Holophanes. And yeah. like, not meaning to diss one of the world's greatest painters, but she absolutely <laughs> whips him. It is so much more dynamic and powerful. And less erotic. I yeah. mean, and I make something in the book of, of Caravaggio's being, you know, the eye is drawn immediately to Judas's breast. And you're right. And you know, erect nipples. Yeah. And it just, you really understand what Artemisia was doing differently when you compare those two works is that it wasn't about the female body at all. It's like she's shifting the female gaze when we're getting inside the women and understanding them rather than just looking at their bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And the solidarity of women as well is captured yes. so beautifully. Beautifully yes. is the wrong word. Brutally, I think is the correct word. Nikki. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's essential in some ways, Ooh. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, totally. One of my favorite quotes about Dentaleski comes from Dr. Peter Paul Rubens on Twitter, who wrote, endured shit and painted about it, which is so true. <laughs> and I wondered how much of the story of Artemisia you've used is true how you researched her and how much you actually took from her paintings? Yeah, okay, well, I'll begin with what I took from her paintings. I took a lot from her paintings. I've assumed a lot from her paintings, but set against what I, what I, what we know of her biography. And I've tried to be very true to the events of her life. Obviously, I'm a fiction writer, so... Some of the, the smaller details are kind of changed, but the events that happened to her are not changed. Everything I write about, all the, the, the big things that happened to her, happened to her. <laughs> and 
I was able to research that. Well, firstly, I was writing it in lockdown, so I couldn't go to Rome and kind of wander around and soak up the atmosphere. So, you know, that was kind of tricky. But for kind of physical place and space, I use a lot of maps and photographs and footage. People were doing drone footage of Rome during lockdown, which was incredible. So there's a lot of there was a lot of that on YouTube. So I could sort of imagine myself to Rome. But with her story, there's a court case in the book which really recounts that year of her life, which is the year that the book covers, which is the when she's age 17. And it's un- unbelievable to think she was so young. Yeah, yeah. And there is a court case and all the transcripts exist, have been translated from the Latin, thank God. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> So I was able to work from them and they include a lot of anecdotal stuff, asides and detail about everyday life. So that was incredibly helpful. And there are biographies, primarily biographies of Artemisia through her paintings. So Mary Garrard, you know, she's like the, she did one, I think in the late nineties, it was published a very, very good and complete biography of Artemisia, it includes her life, but it really is primarily focusing on her work. So there's quite a lot about her that's documented. There are letters. She wrote a lot of letters in later life, so I could get a sense of her personal voice, which was really helpful. And there are books about, you know, quotidian life in Renaissance Italy and things like that, you know, because I like details. I always include a lot of things like the natural world birds and flora and fauna and and weather in my novels. And so, you know, I did a lot of Googling the migratory patterns of birds to see what birds would have been in Rome in which month. Things like that are all quite fun and quite nerdy, which I like. Yeah, it really does transport you back in time and to that place. I would not have wanted to be transported into Gentileschi's life, though. The trial you mentioned is because she was raped by her painting teacher and then she went under trial to to prove this because he couldn't marry her because he was already married to someone else and she was tortured to see whether she was telling the truth yeah. with thumbscrews, which you call the Sibyl. Was that what it was called, I guess, in Italy? Yeah, yeah, it's, that was the name of it and it wasn't, essentially it wasn't the thumbscrews, it was a kind of device that was like a rope wrapped around the fingers and tightened. So it would break the fingers, basically. So this woman had to testify to the truth. She wasn't the the accused, but yet she, not he, had to testify the truth of her testimony under torture. It's mind-boggling to think of that. Yeah, it's horrific. And, you know, but it does to me, you know, there are echoes of these women who who accuse men of rape, who have been raped by men, and they have to undergo a kind of public shaming or a public scrutiny in much the same way she did. I mean, they're not tortured, but some sometimes it could be construed as mental torture. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, I feel that it is a historical novel, but it's so prescient for women now in so many different cultures, including our own. There are still cultures where women are made to marry their rapists. Yep. It, going on now in 2023 uh, in our world. And, you know, so these things haven't gone away. It's not some terrible archaic thing and isn't it terrible what happened to people in the past. These things still matter now and these conversations, you know, hopefully this book will help 
generate new conversations. I checked before we chatted and I think there are still 20 countries in the world where women can be forced to marry their rapists. 20 countries, it's bonkers. Terrifying, right? Terrifying. Disobedient is utterly beautiful, Elizabeth, but it did make me very, very angry and sad on Artemisia's behalf, but also on behalf of, like you say, that the women in the world today who are still enduring this kind of thing. I mean, we live in a country where the prosecution of rape is so low that it means that rape is basically decriminalised. And I did note that disobedient is, and I'm quoting you here, for all the survivors. This is yes. this is a really personal book for you, isn't it? It certainly is a personal book. And it's a book, I mean, I discovered Artemisia quite a long time ago, but I, I just, it's very personal. I am the victim of a violent gang rape when I was age 16. And I'm able to talk about it now, partly because I've written this novel because it was an incredibly cathartic process. But to get to the point of being able to write this novel, which is essentially also about my own experience, it, I, I don't know. I, I had to, the, the time had to be right. And of course. I, just, I never really wanted to write something that would generate pity. I never wanted to write something that would generate shame for me sort of pity in other people and shame for me because I think shame is a terrible, terrible thing that women hang on to and particularly when they've undergone those kind of experiences. There's always this thing where you think you're to blame for for the, the thing that's been done to you. And I don't know, I think, you know, the watching the the unfolding of the Me Too movement, and particularly it was actually watching Christine Blasey Ford testifying in the, in, um, uh, what's, what was his name? Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh, yeah. Brett Kavanaugh in, to be put under the, the Supreme Court. And she was testifying about an event that had happened when she was a teenager, a sexual assault that he had allegedly, I guess we have to say, perpetrated. And I saw her, and it was just, I was, it was almost like I had an out-of-body experience. It was as if it was me speaking. And somehow something happened and I thought, okay, I've got to do this. I've got to talk about it. I've got to talk about it and it might help other people. It might help other people to know they're not alone, to know you don't have to be ashamed. So, yes, it, it's a re- really been a passion project for me and very, very personal. And you put in, very bravely put in your experience into this story of Artemisia. It does reflect how she, I mean, it's, it's not confirmed, we can't ask her, but she seems to very much have put her experience into her paintings, that brutality, that fierceness. Her paintings foreground fierce female protagonists time and time again. She addresses those issues that are still really relevant today, such as sexual violence. I mean, she wouldn't have used the term herself, but are are we thinking that she was a feminist? You know, historians would resist using that term, but certainly I see her as a proto-feminist. The subjects she chose to paint, they all force us to look at women in a different way. And I see that as a feminist act. I mean, obviously, there wasn't such a thing as feminism then. But, you know, I feel she deserves a place at the table. Absolutely. When we reassess her work now, we can see how groundbreaking it was and how courageous she was in producing that in a, in a culture that was so diehard patriarchal. 
You know, I, you know, you just wonder at her courage, really. So that was amazing to create a character who was really so ballsy. Yeah, she's formidable. Yeah, she really is. Yeah, she really is. At times, you know, she does things that are not that likable. And, you know, I, I counter her with another very sweet and rather naive woman who was sort of engaged as a chaperone for Artemisia. She was a bit older, but Artemisia runs rings around her. And I like that to kind of look at these two women who, you know, both had to negotiate the patriarchy in their own way and how they found their way to do it. But Artemisia, yeah, I mean, she's a standout figure in the history of feminism, I think. Totally. And she's become something of a feminist symbol in Renaissance art or for Renaissance art now, hasn't she? Yes, absolutely. And I'm so glad about it. And I really, what I want is for everybody to know about her and everybody to be able to sort of, you know, in the way we know about Vermeer, someone says that name and we can conjure up an image. I want people to have, you know, I want her to be, to be that I, you know, she deserves it. She absolutely deserves it. And thank you so much for introducing me to her. I hadn't heard of her. And now I'm like, oh, my goodness, this woman was just incredible. Just everything about her. And you said you've made bits of her like she's not always likable. I like those bits, too. I think she's amazing. She's such an incredible hero. Yeah. I mean, I like those bits, too, because I think what I love in women I write about is that they're able to be unlikable because so many women feel they've got to be likable to engage in the world and but to have the courage to be unlikable is something I admire greatly not many people are able to do that and yeah so she is she's one of those women she's a real role role model she's she's just fiercer than anything she absolutely is let's talk about another powerful woman briefly uh your book Queen's Gambit is now a film firebrand which comes out this autumn what is the story behind Queen's Gambit, please? Okay, so Queen's Gambit, um, and, and it's actually being, the novel's being re- a new edit. I've done a new edit of the novel and it's being reissued as Firebrand, it also in the autumn as a, as a movie tie-in. So, but it is about Catherine Parr, who is another of those women. So where Artemisia is 17 years old and there's a certain amount of naivety in her. She thinks she knows everything, but, you know, she's, she's, uh, she is 17. Um, Catherine Parr was, she was the, the last wife of Henry VIII and the surviving wife. And she was a survivor. <laughs> yeah, she was a survivor in more than one sense of the word. She didn't just outlive him or just nurse him in his dotage. She was a absolutely really highly, highly intelligent, highly political, a twice-published author. One of the, the first woman to publish an original text in, in the English language. That's incredible. Nobody knows that. Oh. And so I wrote Queen's Gambit, and now the film is... So it's, it's really interesting that, these two, that this novel has kind of come back full circle because it was published 10 years ago. Hmm? 2013. It was my first novel to be published. And it's come back just at the time I've written a book about another similar woman. You know, their trajectory is similar in some ways, the way they have to face unbelievable, unbelievable obstacles. There's a kind of sisterhood between the two women. And so, yeah, the film, it's not really like my book. It's quite different, which I'm really pleased about because I think if it had been more like my book, I might have struggled more with it but Ooh. because it's quite different. And the director 
he's half Brazilian, half Algerian, Karim Ainouz. He has a completely different view on British history. And he takes just a, a part of the book and dramatizes that, which, and I think it's a fantastic film. It's really, really tense and really beautiful to look at. And um, Alicia Vikander plays Catherine Parr and Jude Law plays disgusting, monstrous, late stage Henry VIII. And he's brilliant. They're both brilliant. <laughs> so yeah, I recommend it to everybody. It's such a great film. Something to look forward to this autumn. Excellent. Disobedient is published by Penguin Michael Joseph on July the 27th and is available for pre-order now. It's quite an exciting reader of the audiobook too, though, isn't there? Yes. Well, I am absolutely thrilled that Emma Darcy, who was Rhaenyra Targaryen, I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation, in House of the Dragon and, you know, award-nominated, really interesting actor for our times, a real kind of upcoming name. And they have done the most unbelievable job. I literally had goosebumps when I was listening to it. Sometimes the narration just brings a whole new angle to a text. And that's what Emma's done. So I thoroughly recommend it for all you audiobook fans. Elizabeth, what's next? Or should I say who's next? Well, that's a very good question, actually. I have submitted two proposals to my publishers. It's undecided as to which one they want me to write first. And um, one is another Italian novel about a young woman who is executed for murdering her father. Okay. Nice. And she <laughs> is a real a real figure from uh, Italian history and quite celebrated. And there have been operas written about her. And she's a kind of a really interesting, tragic, but... Again, you know, she's a woman that really kind of stands up for herself and pays the ultimate price. So she's a really interesting figure. The other story is about Amy Dudley. So it's another Elizabethan story. So it's more aligned to kind of Firebrand of my other books set in the Tudor period. And it's about, so Amy Dudley is a woman who she was married to Elizabeth's favorite, who was Robert Dudley. And everybody was so all the gossip was saying that Elizabeth and Dudley were sleeping with each other and that she'd marry him if he wasn't already married. And then Amy Dudley falls down the stairs, breaks her neck and dies. Hmm. Hmm. And that nobody really knows what happened. She was clearly murdered, but the coroner decided it was uh, misfortune or uh, by accident. And there's no doubt that it was foul play. So the novel will be called Misfortune. So, Elizabeth, where can people follow you to find out which one we're having? I'm on Twitter, at Liz Fremantle. No double E in Fremantle, so it's like the Australian Fremantle. I'm on Instagram. I'm on threads now. It's all at Liz Fremantle. And I have a website, which is elizabethfremantle.com. Thank you so, so much for chatting with me. That's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. I am joined by journalist and author Paula Kokoxa. Paula is here today to talk to me about her new novel, Speak to Me. Hello, Paula. How are you doing? Hello. I'm good. Are you? Very good. Thank you. Excited to talk to you about this because I think it's a really interesting premise for a book. 
and it is very entertaining uh, and thought-provoking. So could you tell us a little bit about the book to start off with? Yeah, so it's called Speak to Me and it's about a woman uh, narrated by her who works in a library, manages a library and she is enraged by her husband's mobile. She, we don't call them mobiles now, do we? Phone, but she calls it mobile phone because... It's still kind of alien. It's set in 2011 when smartphones were just reaching that tipping point and she feels she's kind of being outpaced by the world around her and just kind of outmaneuvered in her own home by this phone, which she calls Wendy. And wherever she kind of looks at her husband, all she sees are his eyelids because he's always kind of looking down and busy with it. Um the book opens with a sex scene and the phone vibrates and she can tell he really wants to reach out for it and see what important thing has happened. And she basically wants to kill the phone and she sets about trying to destroy it in various ways. And I guess at the same time, she's lost a case of old love letters And she begins to kind of wonder, she looks for them everywhere and she is on a quest to find this case and to have the kind of one face-to-face conversation that might help her understand where she's been, what she wants now. In a way, there's that kind of conflict between old tech and new. Um, She calls letters paper letters. She's very aware of the medium and of how she herself feels dated by by that. But the book as it goes on, it's in three parts. And I think her relationship to technology does change as the book goes on. So you kind of pick up little hints as, as the book reaches its midpoint that she's actually Googling things quite a lot. She's acquired a smartphone. She um, will say things, I don't know, she'll refer to a shop as being so many steps away that, you know, she's kind of just without being explicit about it. You can just see that she is herself adopting technology increasingly. And then in the final third, that takes her to a different place. And she kind of she says she's getting rid of technology and she's back to pen and paper. But again, the kind of the devices of fiction partly betray her and so I guess it's it's a big consideration of of how the means of communication that we choose changes what we say and what we mean and how we feel as well as how we say it. I mean that's pretty topical isn't it because there's a lot of chat obviously about you know at the moment about sort of online abuse and things like that and the way that we the internet kind of emboldens us to say things that we would never say to another person face to face where did the idea come from it came because just because I noticed everywhere I went people were on phones so this was about six years seven years ago when I started thinking about the idea and I would be in the playground and I'd be maybe seeing a lot of parents on their phones and myself would be checking my work emails I would see people pushing push chairs in this funny sort of with their wrists while they're also holding their phones I just started noticing <laughs> all those little accommodations that people were making to kind of fit their phone up front and close and that familiar scene to all of us surely when you're in a pub 
or a cafe or restaurant and wherever you look people are on a screen of one kind or another it's actually pretty hard in a train carriage to find a person who's not looking at their phone I I just wanted to explore that because I felt myself quite alienated by it like it's just harder to have casual conversation you can't just start chatting to someone in a playground as maybe you once would have done so easily um I felt like loads of little casual conversations you might have were not happening and I thought it would be interesting to explore particularly for someone who has grown up and come of age in at a time when there wasn't this sort of tech so you would see it come into your relationships and you would notice your relationships changing and you might start to hanker for something different it is weird isn't it the way the way things have changed because obviously I think I got my first mobile phone when I was 14 15 something like that this sort of crappy little Vodafone pay-as-you-go uh, you know, didn't have anything. I think maybe it had like snake on it or something like that. But apart from that, nothing. And it's just like, it's hard to imagine a time where you had to be on time for something. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like if you were, if you made plans to see your mates, yeah. you know, one o'clock outside Woolworths or whatever, then you had to be outside Woolworths at one o'clock, right? Like, and now it's yeah. like, oh, it's 10 minutes late, whatever. And it's it's weird to think that that there are adults who have not known that experience. It's it's bizarre. Yeah. It's strange. And I think also the scarcity of communication. I think when I was growing up, you know, um, phone calls were cheaper after a certain time. So you could only use the home phone after a certain time. Mm. It was usually in the hall. So it wasn't very private. Yeah. Someone could pick up the phone downstairs and like listen and, in and to hear, your conversation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah all kinds of all kinds of jeopardy um communicating at home so there's a bit in the in the book about phone boxes as well because I did have a lot of my private romantic conversations in the phone box at the end of the road because I just oh, the point at which my parents said it's 50p for every phone call I thought okay I'll go and spend that on the phone box and have some privacy <laughs> so in the book obviously Kurt um has got his Wendy his yeah. uh, his phone and Susan is looking for this box of love letters they're neither of them having an affair but they are emotionally somewhere else right which yeah. is like both of yeah, them I think that's fair yeah so I, I know that you did quite a lot of research into the the tipping point when it comes to like mobile phone use within relationships I'm interested to know what you found out and how big a problem is this do you think I guess I'd have to say I have qualitative research rather than quantitative I haven't kind of done a big survey no, or anything I've spoken mm. to lots of people and I've you know spent a lot of time in chat rooms and forums listening in mainly I think it is about attention the point at which a person is giving more attention to a device than to the people in the room and the point at which that begins to happen more often than not is the point at which there is a problem. So lots of people I spoke to, it's the sort of loss of small daily rituals of attention as well. So you know the moment when you wake up. If you wake up and you share a bed with someone and you look towards them and say good morning or how whatever you do when you first wake and, and you know, 
acknowledged person with you a lot of people I spoke to felt that moment had totally gone because what happened was their partner just woke up and as soon as their eyes were open they reached for the phone maybe initially they were just checking the time but then there's a few notifications what's happened what are the headlines what's going on on Twitter or Instagram whatever it is so those little moments that maybe seem quite small in themselves actually you realize that there was something there that was treasured and that's gone and it's just a little moment of togetherness and I guess having a phone around so much means you are not together in the same way that intimacy is not there because there is always this sort of gateway to everything else that's going on in the world and you know which may well feel more interesting in, in those moments i think on one hand it's not really about the phone is it it's no it's about susan and about her feelings about her life and her domesticity and and yeah and where she's ended up which I, I think is a feeling that a lot of women and i'm sure men as well but women obviously generally the primary caregivers of uh, children or or parents or or whatever you know a sense of dissatisfaction that life used to be really fun and exciting and now it's just a bit suburban and shit right yeah so so I think that's part of it isn't it but but going back to the phones it's changed so much of again I'm sort of just saying what I said before about Woolworths really but like reading I used to read every night at bedtime and now yeah. I just doom scroll instead. Do you think these things are really sort of changing our mindsets? I think they must change the way we think. They must change the way we're capable of paying attention and receiving attention because it's just, it's kind of an ongoing distraction, isn't it? And distraction is wired into the functionality of phones. That's how, that's how money's made. It's how, you know, it's the kind of, monetization of our attention and that means that we we are less free to give our attention freely to to you know to the our immediate surroundings and the people with us but you're right that for her you know the phone is a lightning rod it it kind of encapsulates for her everything that she kind of is pained by in her life she's just turned 50 and there's a point at which she says, or oh, maybe I'm writing a coming of age story or a coming of middle age story. And I think it has got that feeling of a kind of slow, but very sure creeping understanding of what she wants and that she hasn't actually got what she wants. And then, well, what is it? And how am I going to find it? And so she does become increasingly I think she acts more and more as the book goes on. She sort of starts off with a rant, but she becomes an actor. The blurb about the book says that it is about the way we say things without actually saying them. And I think a lot of us are probably actually frightened to communicate our needs to other people, right? Is that kind of what you were driving at with with that, the idea that we're sort of tiptoeing around each other and, and not? saying the things that need saying yeah definitely I think it's something like how we say and don't say the things in our hearts and I think there is a sense in which the narrator is carrying around something quite heavy that she's not ever found a way to say and 
she has to learn to express herself and I guess the book's called speak to me she definitely does want that but she also has to learn how to speak for herself and give voice to herself and I think the book is in in part it's a celebration of that of finding the words and finding your voice I think we we think often about all the ways we might communicate are we going to put this on a text or a voice note or an email or a phone call or are we going to say it or you know leave a post it whatever we we've got so many options and we don't really pay attention to all the silences the things we willfully or unwillfully reserve and I think I grew up a pretty shy person and not saying things was very much part of my kind of childhood experience and definitely part of growing up and becoming an adult now a kind of middle-aged adult it was about learning to say things and I think you know there are so many ways not to communicate and there's so I have one character who's totally silent in the book And I had to find lots of ways for there to be communication and interaction going on without speech. So I think it's fascinating the ways we don't say things. In the book, there's this sort of Wendy-shaped rift growing between them. But, you know, it's about all sorts of other things as, as discussed. But it made me think about this idea that we are connected more than ever. So we our opportunity to to speak to people is greater than it has ever been but also we're apparently the loneliest we've ever been and so there's Mm. you know there's kind of issues with that and that is self-reported so there might be something in it about you know willingness to disclose feeling lonely but I wondered if you had any thoughts on that like what why do you think that is I mean there's been a lot of research on the loneliness epidemic hasn't there Mm. and I think you know it seems uh, it seems that very compelling that's that's what we're in I think it goes to this idea of our expectations because we have so many different means of communication at our fingertips quite literally um, we expect to feel connected we are really connected but meaningful connection is something else entirely and I think that discrepancy between the two means that you know, you mentioned doom scrolling earlier. Okay, so in a way you are connected, you're kind of plugged into your world. You see the familiar handles on Twitter or whatever, the people whose stuff you like to read or or not read. And you are connected, but it's not really emotionally sustaining necessarily. And I guess there's just that mismatch between all the all the ways we have to speak with each other. And the frequency with which we actually do that and have really emotionally potent or conversations with people or even you know accidental and on the surface fairly meaningless interactions like a lot of the loneliness studies have said that it's things like talking to a neighbor or just nodding at someone down the street or a casual chat with a person in the corner shop all of those little interactions are very meaningful in making us feel kind of embedded in our community uh, and in ourselves, um, in our relationships. And I guess once you go around with a phone in your pocket or in your hand, your attention is always half there. Uh, I mean half, I don't know what the actual fraction is, but they take a lot of our thought and our mind and our time. 
So, Paula, Speak to Me is yep. available now, published on the 6th of July. I wondered what's next for you, because this is your second book, isn't it? And you're also a features writer at The Guardian. And what's what's next? Yeah, that's a good question, Jen. <laughs> um <laughs> Well, I've kind of got a few ideas that I'm working on, but I'm not totally committed yet to one or the other. So I'm still at the exploring stage and I'm trying to give myself time to do that because a novel is a huge commitment Mm. um, above all. When you start, you start with something really quite slight. Maybe you've got one idea or you can hear the voice of the main character And you have to build a whole world from that. And it's got to be a world that you totally believe and can have absolute conviction about. Otherwise, it's just not going to feel truthful and honest. So I'm trying to give myself the time to decide, you know, to really come to that point of full belief. I'm interested in the idea of older characters because I think fiction is just starting to get more interested in older, older people, older women especially. And I would quite like to do something very fun around a much older woman. So I've started kind of tinkering with that. I'm also looking at the possibility of writing a story set in a neurodiverse family. I'm interested in those kinds of communication challenges as well. So those are a couple of things that I'm just, I've got my files on Scrivener that I'm working in and I just kind of, brain dumping both and at a certain point I'm going to see where all the energy is. Excellent well that all sounds very interesting. So Paula where can we follow you and be like semi-connected to you <laughs> on on the social media? Have you started the mass migration to threads yet? To threads? I haven't yet. I, I need to look into that because um, I just saw a little line in one of the news stories saying that it's not up and running in the EU because it's got regulatory issues and I just thought oh I might just find out what those are I'm, I may well do that but at the moment I'm still on Twitter where I'm at Kokotza Paula and I'm on Instagram where I am you know working my way up to my first ever post. <laughs> Paula thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me it's been great. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week when we flash our tits in celebration of women's sports. Ah, no, sorry, I mean when we treat athletes seriously and give them the credit they deserve, instead of reducing them to sexualised sentient fucksticks, as we discuss all things women's sport. So on that note, congratulations to Daniela Hemsley for winning her kingpin boxing bout against Ms Danielka via a unanimous points decision. I offer her absolutely no congratulations, however, for flashing her tits at the crowd and cameras in celebration. I think Clarissa Shields put it best when she responded, Wow. This is a step back for women's boxing. Stop this shit. Let's move on then to some real sport. And I am, of course, talking about the Women's World Cup, which kicks off in Australia and New Zealand tomorrow, if you're listening on Wednesday. Let's start with the question you're all asking. Can the Lionesses win it? 
Well, if we look at forecasting by data crunchers at Gracenote, the answer to that is a resounding no. In fact, their chance of reaching the final is just 16% and of winning only 8%. That said, this is just a data crunching machine and it doesn't take into account the many, many other issues that might affect a team's performance. However, though the England squad is enviably deep in talent, they are without Leah Williamson and Beth Mead. Both players currently out with ACL injuries. England are also in one of the most competitive groups facing Denmark, China and Haiti. You'd expect them to top that group, I think, but that would most likely set them on a course to meet Canada and then, if they're successful there, Germany en route to a potential final. Neither of which would be an easy task, but, you know, obviously we are capable of beating Germany, as we know. Interestingly, even the overwhelming tournament favourites USA have an 18% chance of winning according to Grace Note, with Sweden and Germany on 11% and France on 9% above England, Spain and Australia on 8 So anything could happen except the Republic of Ireland progressing to the knockout stage, I'm afraid. I don't want to sound dismissive, but they are up against Canada and hosts Australia and Nigeria in Group B and they don't have a cat in hell's chance, is my personal opinion. I'm not going to talk about the USA. I don't give a fuck about the USA other than that I hope they don't win. So I will talk about a couple of other teams to watch out for instead. Ada Hergerberg returns to play for Norway after a five-year absence which ended at last year's Euros and that was in protest over treatment of the women's team. She's a big name in women's football. She won the first ever women's Ballon d'Or in 2018 and a massive six Champions League titles with Lyon. 37-year-old Marta returns with Brazil for her sixth World Cup. I don't think they will win it, but she is a goddess, so worthy of a nod, in my opinion. I think that Australia could be the dark horses in this tournament. They are a decent side and they benefit from what a sports page would refer to as their talismanic captain and striker, Sam Kerr, currently doing the business at Chelsea. They also obviously have the benefit of a home crowd. I don't think they will win, but I do expect them to go relatively far in the tournament. In terms of the Lionesses, I'm excited to see Alessia Russo play. She's recently made a high-profile move from Manchester United to Arsenal in the WSL, and I think she will have matured since her extremely successful turn at the Euros last year, having gained a lot of experience since then. In terms of the headlines, expect to see equal pay and prize money dominating. There's been a lot of beef between teams and their governing bodies in recent months, including Spain, Canada and now Australia, who've spoken out on the eve of the tournament about paying athletes fairly. The USA, whose dispute against their national governing body has now been resolved. I mean, it's a bit more complicated than that, but, you know, the result has been a good one for them. I think they are proof that women footballers have increasing purchase here and long may that continue. I'm very excited for kickoff on Thursday. I'm sure we'll be talking about this more in the coming weeks. That's all for me this week and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what film that we watched this week meant I added Ride a Whale? question mark to my bucket list (laughs) this week we watched whale rider as i said at the top released in the uk this month in 2003 written and directed by nikki caro it was based on a 1987 novel by wheaty ihamira 
Anne tells the story of a young Maori girl who wants to become the chief of her tribe, a role her grandfather, the current chief, believes only men can do. Now, if that sounds a wee bit familiar, and indeed we mentioned it last week, the directors of Disney's Moana said Whale Rider acted as an inspiration for their film. Caro also went on to work with Disney herself, directing another film about a young girl who didn't know her place, the 2020 live-action remake of Mulan. That film cost $200 million to make, which makes Whale Rider's budget of around $3.5 million US dollars look small fry. I've moved that into dollars, so they were both in the same currency, but obviously it was made in New Zealand dollars. Quite a lot of that money, I'm guessing, went on the mix of full-scale models and CGI used for those beached whales. But the film made that money back and more besides. For a while, it was the highest grossing New Zealand film ever made and is now ranked at number five. It's been credited for increases in both New Zealand's whale-watching tourism industry and possibly whale-riding Mickey. Who knows? I think it's probably like elephants. You probably shouldn't, but oh, it looked good. It looked fun. (laughs) In terms of critical acclaim, it has 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. One dissenting voice was The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw, obviously the target audience for this film. (laughs) He called it, quote, a cross between Free Willy and a 90-minute Benetton ad. And I'm just going to say here that I've always thought that reference to a Benetton ad was code for has non-white people I was just going to say, I would read that as, I don't know, Peter... A little bit racist. (laughs) And also incorrect. Just uh, totally incorrect. Whale Rider won the World Cinema Award at the Sundance Film Festival, but I'm really burying the lead here because age just 13, its star Keisha Castle-Hughes was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress, becoming the youngest female actor ever nominated in that category a record she held until nine-year-old Quivangeli Wallace was nominated for Beasts of the Southern Wild. Castle Hughes, who, like many of the cast, had never acted before and is probably now best known for playing a bar of sand in Game of Thrones, was chosen from 10,000 youngsters who auditioned. She lied about being able to swim in order to get the part and had to be replaced (laughs) by a stunt double in a few scenes. But, and to get my powder wetter than a whale's tooth that's been slung into the sea by an angry man. It was a lie (laughs) that paid off, and more on that later. Here's a bit of plot for those who haven't seen it. After a traumatic birth that kills her mother and her twin brother, Pi, that's Castle Hughes, is left to be raised by her grandparents when her dad, that's Cliff Curtis, goes to Germany to be an artist. Her grandfather, played by Rawiri Paratine, is the chief of their local community, claiming to be a direct descendant of Paikia, who rode a whale from Haiwaki, according to Maori tradition. Having lost his firstborn son and his firstborn son, the chief is left desperate to find a replacement. He rejects Pai's attempts to join the competition, even after she beats his favourite candidate in a stick fight, and becomes depressed when none of the boys in the town can retrieve a whale tooth necklace that he threw into the sea. But when a pod of whales are beached in the town they live in, Pi grabs the opportunity to prove she is more than capable of the job. 
Okay, first question, lads. Had you seen this before? No. I had not seen it before, no. I don't think I'd ever heard of it, in fact. It was funny, when you mentioned it and I said, oh, I don't know that one, and you told me about it, I was like, that sounds interesting, the Moana reference. But as soon as I saw the poster for it, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that little girl. I remember it being quite a big deal. And obviously, because she was nominated for Mm. the Oscar, that's why it was a big deal. Yeah, this would have come out when I was at uni, and I think I didn't see a lot of cinema at that time and I probably was more interested in like boys and beer and shit like that so yeah I I don't even I don't remember it at all I actually saw it at the cinema but I'm fortunate I love to live in a city where we have an an arts theatre so you know you get to see stuff like this where should we start should we talk about Keisha Castle Hughes because as you know I love a film about a little girl who won't take no for an answer this really though as a film lives and dies on her performance and I personally think she is amazing in this oh yeah she's incredible she absolutely holds every scene she kind of puts I was going to say she puts people to shame but I think all the performances are really really good but she's so engaging and believable Mm. and fiery yet submissive to her granddad at the same time it's such a fine balancing act in getting across that she's got all of this spirit yet she does respect her elders yeah and she does it so well i as a rule don't approve or whatever like when they nominate children for big awards you only have to look at what happened to Anna Paquin when she won an Oscar and just think actually that's child cruelty to leave her standing on a stage by herself utterly speechless must be terrifying but that said she absolutely deserved that nomination that speech that she gives to him and he hasn't even turned up to hear it she's not crying she's trying not to cry that's the old Robert Duvall thing yeah she's incredible in that scene I think yeah I think it's really powerful she's very believable it is just like watching a little girl try not to cry isn't it it's not it's it's very natural I think Mm. the fact that she is so believable and the film is almost documentary in its look and feel mm. for such a long time with them following her around with the camera and stuff meant that when she actually straddled a whale I was like oh fuck this is happening okay <laughs> was not expecting this she did that <laughs> speech in one take just FYI wow. they only filmed that oh, once well done. that's incredible yeah I agree with Mick though I think all the performances are really strong actually I don't I don't think there is one dud note really there's an interesting thing here between and you just sort of mentioned it Mickey the idea that traditions are to be respected, but also what do you do when those traditions are well sexist? Do you think this Mm. handles that sort of dichotomy well? I think that the granddad comes across, I don't know, because I obviously watched it with my mum and we were sort of, I had a bit of sympathy for him. I was like, well, he's quite tragic really, isn't he? Because he just like, that's all he wants is, is this thing. He's completely about this one thing finding this you know the next chief to the extent that like he fucks off his family and like he's completely blinkered by it so he's kind of tragic but he made me so angry throughout you know there were points i was a bit like oh, i do feel a bit sorry for him but he just made me so angry i was just like you're literally watching your granddaughter like endanger herself to make a fucking point he just pissed me off does it do it well yeah i think it does do it well because i think that while you do feel a bit of sympathy for him it is obviously what he is doing. Like, he's cruel to her, I think. Mm-hmm. Really cruel. And that's the thing that made me so angry. And she just sort of takes it. And and you're just like, oh, you poor little fucker. Like, haven't you had like a hard enough life without now enduring the cruelty of this stupid old fuck? It made me really angry. 
I had no sympathy for him and I thought he was a raging arsehole all the way through. I hated him. Even when he was really sad, I was like, good, be sad, old man. You brought this on yourself. And I agree with what Jen said. It's tantamount to child abuse, if not child abuse, Mm. the way he treats her. And he obviously wasn't much nicer with his own kids. Mm. I think the addition of his missus of her grandmum is... No one says grandmum, what the fuck? Her grandma is really good because she is a really good counter who has clearly been sick of the sexist shit of these traditions for a long time and yet still gone along with it. And I feel like with her and the other female elders, it's like they are looking to pie, actually, to break traditions in a way that they've not been able to and to be a new voice and to show that sex doesn't matter in this particular sense and that women can be just as good a leader as men. And because he's so all-consumed with getting the next leader, he's not even a good leader. The guy, Mm. you know, the grandpa isn't even a good leader. He's not a good chief. Whereas Pi is much more community-minded and wants to help people and wants to do stuff for her traditions and for her ancestors. So it does walk that line really, really well because so many cultures have mad sexist traditions Mm. right this isn't just a an outlier this is the norm that traditions in religion and culture tend to be incredibly patriarchal and women are fighting little girls are fighting to change that and so i think this story obviously tells its story very well but i think it tells a much broader story really Mm. well too i kind of agree with jen in that there is times that i feel that he is sort of sympathetic because he feels a moral responsibility not to lose his traditions but he's just so blind that he can't see it doesn't have to be a bloke that carries them on and you're right Mickey it's not just you know about marriage traditions is it it's a whole wider picture I mean he is tragic because he's pushing away his own family he'll do this at any cost and and like everyone thinks he's a stupid old fuck basically and he just plows ahead with it anyway so I do I do think he is tragic in a lot of ways. But also, the ending made me a bit angry as well, because I was a bit like, is no one going to say to him? (laughs) Spoiler alert, when he's in the hospital room, I was like, as if you get to be the first one in there, you prick. Mm. Well, he does, though, because he's the chief of the tribe, so he does. And and I think that's why I don't have sympathy for him, because everything you've just described, Jen, when you were saying that's why you see him as tragic, and absolutely fair enough, but he's just a selfish old he man. Is, yeah. And I think the fact that I, I'd struggle to find sympathy with him, even though the performance is great and he's very sad and he is stuck in his own traditions that he feels he is trying to uphold. There are so many men who are like this yeah. and subject the women and girls in their family to this shit mm. that I'm just, I'm just sick to the back whale's teeth of it. <laughs> That's no, that, I mean that is fair enough because you're right because these people do exist. They are real, and like you, you could probably argue that a lot of them are tragic as well. But I, I wouldn't. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> it's probably testament to his performance then. Yes, that you, probably you felt that way. Yeah. yeah, and the storytelling. So I watched this with one of our workies last week, and one of the things we talked about was, you know, when you look at all those boys he's got on the boat, it seems obvious that none of them are appropriate for the job. You know, (laughs) before you got on the boat, you could have worked that out. And that Pi then finding the necklace that he's thrown, the whale's tooth, also seems slightly unbelievable. So it's unbelievable that he thinks one of them could do it and it's unbelievable that Pi can do it herself. 
But there's something else going on here. This isn't just about her ability. This is in some way some sort of thing about predestination. Do you know what yeah. I mean? There is an element mm. of magic in here. That, magic realism, yeah. right? Yeah. How do you think it handled that? I had a long chat with my mum about this. I was just like, well, hang on. She's obviously like the chosen one, right? She's, you know, for whatever reason, magic or predestined, whatever. She's the chosen one. But how can she be the chosen one if her dad was supposed to be the chosen one and her brother was supposed to be the chosen one? If you're the chosen one, you can't just go, well, I'm not going to be the chosen one. So if her dad was meant to be the one, he has to be the one, doesn't he? How can there be another one before he's the one? Yeah, because otherwise it's a constitutional monarchy, right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Did I find it jarring? I was very surprised when she straddled a whale and rode it out to sea. I'm not going to lie. I was like, you'd think with the title, Mickey, that you might be expecting this. But I absolutely was not expecting this because everything else had seemed so realistic. To me, even her going and finding the whale's tooth, because she is a stubborn little fucker. And I just thought she would would sort of stay down there with that spirit Hmm. until she found it. But I absolutely, I do hear what you're saying about that as well. But yeah, when she got on the whale, I was like, oh. Oh, this is, this is happening. Okay. And then I thought about it and I was like, well, I kind of love that they put some magic realism into it because otherwise, how could she prove herself? But at the same time, it's really frustrating that the only way that she can prove herself is by magic realism. There was no other way he was ever going to believe her. She had to ride a fucking whale. And sometimes as a woman in this world, it does feel like, like, okay, yep. right, I'm going to have to ride a fucking whale <laughs> yeah. before you take me seriously. But at the same time, that is annoying because it shouldn't be so. So I was a little surprised at first, but then think it's it's a very accurate message apart from the whale riding. She yeah. knows robbed the whale. And I liked that because one of the first things I taught my daughter to do was to nose rub me. So, and I think it's probably the best piece of parenting I've done in the last three years, if I'm honest. My greatest achievement. (laughs) But yeah, I enjoyed her nose rubbing the whale. That made me very happy. That connection, I guess it's a a very dramatic way of showing her connection to her ancestors, even though she's a girl. Mm. But yeah. Buffy Summers didn't get to shirk her responsibility. That's all I'm saying, dad in Germany. So, whatever. (laughs) Those whales look good, though. I thought, you know, that would be the thing that aged. Mm. Albeit that New Zealand at the time was the hub, because of Lord of the Rings, was like the hub of special effects and that sort of thing. That's true. That said, they had a tiny, tiny budget. So I was expecting them to look a bit half-assed, but I thought they looked really good still. The whales made me so sad. They made me so sad. When one of them dies, I I did a cry. And the the response as well, that that when you see the community come together, I think that was really beautifully done. Mm. And interestingly... His second son, Grandpa's second mm. son, oh, I love. Went, oh, he's fucking amazing. Yeah. You get them all together, they'll listen to you. Yeah. He knows that they're not listening to him anymore. And he's the chief. Yeah. I think you're going to laugh at me uh, for what I'm about to say. Didn't occur to me that they weren't real whales. <laughs> <laughs> One of them was played by Jack Nicholson. Did you not stop that? <laughs> <laughs> Two of them were played by Jack Nicholson, actually. <laughs> it just, I, it just didn't even occur to me that they weren't real. Of course they're not fucking real. I don't know why. It just did not occur to me. <laughs> okay, so that's oh, a yes. Jen. Jen thought that the special effects stood up. Very good, yes. <laughs> good barnacles. I saw this has been put on a number of lists of films all teenage girls could should see. I'm guessing we're agreeing with that, yeah. Yeah, because it's amazing, but I don't want all teenage girls to think that the only way they can prove <laughs> themselves is to ride a fucking whale out to sea and nearly drown. 
And I also don't want little girls to feel that they need validation that much. From from old bastards. men. And by ancient, I mean like so stuck in the past. Yeah, because mm. I think that's the thing that I found so heartbreaking about her is how much she needs that. I mean, she's 12. Is she 12 or 13? I don't know. She's a young girl. And so, you know, it's not like, I'm not saying this is in like it's it's a fault of the character or whatever. She's just dealing with the circumstances she's in in life, right? But she needs that validation so much. And I found that like really, really heartbreaking. She ends up fighting to sort of change herself and show herself to him. Mm. And he's not interested. Yeah. And it is really, really sad watching that because that plays out again in, in the real world so many times. Yeah where particularly women and girls are fighting to be heard yeah. by someone who just does not want to hear them. And yeah, it's yeah. it's actually so upsetting to watch her do that. And so many other people around her are telling her she's great and she just doesn't hear it because she needs to hear it from him. It's such oh. like relatable content, I think, for mm. so many women for so many different reasons. Like it yeah, is, it's, yeah. So this is one of these films that goes with a big emotional punch and I know Mickey always likes to ask this question so I'm going to ask it did it make you cry I mean I've already told you it made me cry but it was the whale dying that made me cry it was when the whale dying and maybe that's because animals dying at the moment is a bit of a trigger for me I'm not sure also I am a soppy sausage when it comes to animals as you know from my love of the nature programs which are brutal because nature is brutal I didn't cry when she was in danger, because I think once she fucking straddled a whale, I'm like, I'm pretty sure she's going to pull through. <laughs> I think it's going to be okay. Yeah, that would have been a whole different film if she'd... Uh, fucking yeah. hell. Oof. But the treatment she receives from her granddad made me really sad. It didn't make me cry, but it made me actually feel very sad. It didn't make me cry at any point, but I did when she's making her speech and she's trying not to cry and he's not fucking turned up for it. Mm. At that point, there was a lump in my throat. I will say in Grumpy Old Dude's defence, right, he is intending to go to her speech. He is intending to go to the school show, but he's distracted by beached whales. I suppose so. He puts yeah. a suit on, doesn't he? Yeah. He does. Yeah. He's still an arsehole, though. I actually find the end of it to be really moving. It's probably the most famous film about Maoris. The only other film that... that is in any way famous about Maoris is Once Was Warriors, which is a really brutal film about domestic violence. So I think that end bit when she says, I know that our people will keep going forwards all together with all of our strength, I actually felt like that was kind of lovely because it was like a really positive message to send out to the world about Maoris rather yeah. than the small section of Maori society that the world had sort of known best up until that point. Yeah. And in addition to that point you just made, Hannah, like the change is almost immediate because there are girls on that boat mm. as well. Yes, there are girls yeah. running with it as well. And yeah. I think that is really powerful in that like she has worked her ass off to get where she is and she's immediately brought women with her, yeah. which is incredible. And her dad's there. So you've got that whole like, oh, she's bringing them all back together again. Like she's bringing the family together again and whatever. Although I did say to my mum, pregnant German lady is quite clearly in her third trimester and I don't think she would have been allowed to fly to New Zealand, but whatever. <laughs> Perhaps she rode a whale. Maybe she did. Anything's possible. Final question. Whale rider, rated or dated? Rated. Yeah, rated. Yeah, three for three, rated. What's next? We're going to stick with a sort of animal theme 
for the next one. I always ask that with a certain amount of trepidation. <laughs> What's next? I've watched this quite a few times, so I'm interested to see. We're going to watch 1978's International Velvet. Bit of Liz Taylor. No, that's National Velvet. Oh, so, international velvet. So this okay. is this is a sequel, but it's very much a standalone film. Well, clearly, I have no idea. Is it horses? It's horses, mate. It's it horses. Is horses. Yeah. Okay. So rather a yay or nay question next week. Hey. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.